Well, open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 9. It was September 11th, 2001, 21 years ago, on this day, on a sunny day in New York City, that tragedy struck. Terrorists flew two planes into the two World Trade Centers. Fire Chief Peter Hayden said that there were between 30 to 50,000 civilians in those two buildings. They needed to be rescued. Those civilians needed help getting out. So hundreds of firefighters and police officers and port authority officials rushed to that horrific scene. And as those men and women stood below those two towers, they looked up, they saw the smoke billowing out, debris was falling, people were jumping to their death, and they each had a choice to run and go to safety or to go in to give up their time, their effort, and maybe even their own lives to try to save some lives. And we all know the end. Thousands, thousands of people were saved on that day. Their lives were saved because there were men and women who sacrificed their own lives for them. 343 firefighters, 23 police officers, and 27 port authority officers lost their lives on that day. Would you agree with this statement? Thousands of people were saved on 9-11 through the sacrificial giving of first responders. Thousands of people were saved on 9-11 through the sacrificial giving of first responders. And that statement is true when it comes to saving people's physical lives, but it's also true when it comes to giving the gospel to people so their spiritual souls can be saved. This last week when we preached on this text, we didn't get all the way through it, but this was really what we led off with, that the gospel advances in the world through sacrificial giving. People's lives all around the world are able to be saved because we have first responders who sacrifice, sometimes even their own lives to save those people. But church, there's something more important than just your life. It's your soul. It's your eternity. And in order for us to give the gospel to people, to go into this world with the gospel, there has to be people who give sacrificially, give of their own lives. In fact, the church in Corinth, they had two very clear examples of that. First was the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul came into Corinth and he walked into that city with no financial support. He walked into that city knowing that he was probably going to be persecuted and beaten there. And sure enough, there was persecution. He walked into that city giving up his rights for the sake of giving the gospel to those people. In fact, he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, and he sent, it with, sent that letter with Timothy. And Timothy went in a pastoral capacity. And so the, the church saw Timothy. And you know, Timothy went to that church and actually went into ministry. And in order to do that, he had to sacrificially give up some things. In fact, there was a conversation at some point that Paul and Timothy had to have when Acts chapter 16, Paul invited Timothy to come with him as a partner in ministry and to be mentored under Paul. And it was in regard to how Peter or how Timothy was brought up. His mother was a Jewish woman. She was a believer and his grandmother as well. But his father was a Greek and probably an unbeliever. And therefore, Timothy never received the mark of circumcision. And so Paul wanted to talk to him about this. And 
we don't have the conversation recorded in scripture, but I was trying to imagine what that conversation was like as they sat in Lystra or whatever city they were sitting in. And Paul talked to Timothy, said, Timothy, um, you know, I want you to come with me to preach the gospel. And I, I preached the gospel to the Jew first and then the Greek. And Timothy, I can imagine he responded back, yeah, my father was a Greek, and so I, I, I want to reach Greek people. My mother was a Jew, and I have a heart for both those people groups. And I can imagine Peter, or sorry, Peter, Paul, Paul responded back and said, Timothy, there's a, a problem, though. If you go and preach to these Greeks, these Gentiles, they won't listen to you because you don't have the mark of circumcision. And I can imagine Timothy might have said something back like, Paul, haven't you said that uh, it doesn't count for anything? It doesn't matter? It's not necessary anymore? Paul would have responded back, you're right, it's true. A ritual like that, uh, religious works, gain us no favor with God. So, so in Christ, it's your right not to have something like that happen to you. You don't have to have that surgery. But, but Timothy, in order to advance the gospel amongst the Jewish people, it's going to be necessary for you to give up that right. And so Timothy, at some point we know he responded to Paul and was willing to go through that painful surgery so he could win people to Christ. And I think about it like this. Timothy was willing to sacrifice his right for the sake of gospel advance. And not just that, but even the fact that he, he left his mother, he left his grandmother and we don't know if he saw them again or how often he saw them, or maybe he didn't even get to attend their funerals. But he went out for the sake of the gospel. So the church of Corinth, they had two wonderful examples of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 of, of two people who, who knew their rights in Christ but gave up their freedoms for gospel advance. Again, 1 Corinthians 9 is speaking about Christian liberty issues. We're not talking about, about surrendering doctrinal convictions or gospel convictions. We're talking about surrendering personal convictions, being able to serve others by surrendering your own freedoms for the sake of reaching other people with the gospel. And so 1 Corinthians really 9, 1 through 19 answers the question how can I advance the gospel? And we see through Paul's example that you should know your Christian liberty, but then deny yourself for gospel advance and then give sacrificially for gospel advance. And so this is what we talked about last week. We didn't make it all the way through, so we're going to conclude it this week. And so let me pray that God would bless the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that Paul gave us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Lord, we ask, please, help us not just to understand it. Help us, Lord, to know how to live it so we can honor you and obey you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You, you might hear people in a conversation, Christians in a conversation, maybe say something like this. Why can't I wear that? What, what's wrong with doing this? What's the big deal with drinking that? The, the Bible doesn't restrict me from saying this or doing this or going here. So why can't I do that? And usually that type of thinking, that type of communication comes from one who is, frankly, usually more spiritually immature. Because that way of thinking holds up my, my Christian freedoms in Christ, and it holds them up and, and, and considers how those freedoms can serve me. But Paul here is encouraging us to actually take our Christian freedoms and to serve other people with those freedoms. So Paul contended that he had rights. And you see this in the beginning of verse 1 and verse 2, that Paul says, am I not free? Don't I have rights as a Christian, as an apostle? And the answer is, 
Yes, he says, I do have rights. And so he gives us some of those rights. He mentions three rights, three freedoms in Christ that he has. And we're not going to look through them all again, but notice verse 4. The first one is that he had the freedom in Christ to eat and drink what he wanted to eat and drink, like the other apostles, like other Christians do. I mean, Peter had a vision from Christ in Acts chapter 10, and Peter was told, Peter, you can eat these foods that were once restricted. So did Paul have a right to eat those foods as well as Peter? Absolutely. How about the second right? Verse 5, we see this, that he had the right, he had the freedom to get married like the other apostles. Peter was married. Uh, The other apostles, the brothers of Jesus were married. Peter says, I have that right in Christ as well. But he denied himself of that right. He remained unmarried so that he could reach more people with the gospel. And that's where we ended last week. And we now we're going to look this week at the third right that Paul presented, his freedom in Christ that he forfeited was being paid for gospel work, being paid for gospel work. And if you look in verse 6 through verse 14, you see a lengthy argument by Paul that he had the right to receive compensation for his gospel work. Look at verse number six. This is really where he starts this this third freedom in Christ. Verse six, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So in verse 6, Paul contrasted himself and um, Barnabas with the other apostles. The other apostles, the apostles, they received compensation for gospel ministry. Is it only Barnabas and I who have to work a secular job to support ourselves? And the answer, therefore, is, is no. And, and evidently, the other apostles received some type of compensation for their work in the church. And he says, why not Why not myself? Why not Paul? Why not Barnabas? Remember Barnabas, he traveled with Paul as an evangelist. He went from city to city as well, preaching the gospel. And also remember, he had some type of wealth, right? He owned some land. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 4, you can see that he sold that, gave it to the church. And so so some have argued here that maybe what this is talking about is that some people looked at Barnabas and said, well, Barnabas is rich. He's wealthy. Like he can support himself. Why would we pay Barnabas for gospel work when he can support himself? Or they looked at Paul and they said, Paul has a side business. Like he, he has a very good, he has a skill in a certain area. And so why should we pay him for his gospel work? He's already getting money from another job. In fact, would you do this with me? Go back to Acts chapter 18, because I want to show this to you. Paul and Barnabas they did have some source of income. And Paul's argument in in 1 Corinthians 9 is that, well, we still have the right to receive compensation for our work. But I want you to notice in Acts 18 how Paul gives up that right to receive compensation for gospel ministry by by really having another job, by being bivocational. Look at Acts 18. This is where Paul comes into Corinth Verse number two, the scripture says, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So Aquila and Priscilla came from Rome, from Italy, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, that's Paul, went to see them. And because he, that's Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them and what? worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers, and Paul evidently had skills in this area as well. So he came, lived with them, worked with them, and Paul supported himself in gospel ministry by doing this other job. So Paul really had two full-time jobs. And you can see that in Acts 18, where he's, he's on a regular basis, going and preaching the gospel, but also he's working this job as well. And then in chapters 18 and, or chapters 19 um, and 20, you see Paul going to Ephesus with Aquila and 
Priscilla. In fact, look down in verse number 20, and this is what Connor read this morning when he did the scripture reading. Paul went to Ephesus. He gave the gospel to them. Aquila and Priscilla were based out of Ephesus. Evidently, they still had some kind of working relationship. And in Acts 20, what we see is Paul's last time in Ephesus. Paul was saying goodbye to the pastors in this church in Ephesus, the elders there. And Paul recalls how he sacrificed his right for pay for the sake of the church. Look at, we're not going to go through the whole passage, but look at chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he, he gathers the pastors. He wants to have one last conversation with them. Notice Paul's sacrificial giving. Look at verse 24. Paul says, I do not count, I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself. Paul's saying, as I think about myself, as I think about my life, I don't consider my life as valuable to myself. I I surrendered it over to the Lord. I spent my life on serving you and giving you the gospel. Our lives are probably the most precious things we have, right? If your house is on fire and you know it's going to burn down and you don't have much time, there's one thing that you're going to save, the most important thing. And what is it? It's your own life, right? Whatever else in the house doesn't matter. I mean, unless someone else is in the house. But if you're by yourself, you're going to try to save your life by getting out of there, even if you lose everything else. And Paul was saying that most valuable thing that we all have, that is our own lives. He says, I don't even count it valuable to myself. Why? Because he wants to serve people. In fact, you can see that verse 27. Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's why he was there. He wanted to preach God's word to them. And and again, not just the gospel. He went further than that. He talked about doctrine. He says, I want you to know the whole counsel of God. He gave his life so they could know God's word. Look at verse 31. He recalls his ministry with them. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering, remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, was Paul serious about his gospel work? Did Paul work hard for the gospel? He did. I mean, night and day with tears, he begged people to follow Christ. Now, friends, church, that is sacrificial giving, isn't it, right there? But he didn't do it for pay. He didn't receive compensation. Look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I wasn't there to get things from you. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands, his own hands, ministered to my necessities. He he took care of his own needs. And to those who are with me, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So notice he gives up his right to receive compensation by working. And why did he do that? Why did he have this other job that he did? I mean, think about that. Think how much time that would have taken to, to be bivocational. Bi, bi what does he say there in verse 35? To help the weak. And who are the weak? Well, it was those in Ephesus and in Corinth who had really, I think, a weak conscience in regard to money. In Corinth and Ephesus, some commentaries say that there were orators who would go around and they would speak, and it was a a very important thing back in the Greek culture to have these orators go around and speak to people, and many of them would demand pay. So they would speak to a group, and then they'd pass a plate, and people would pay them. And Paul knew that if he did that, that could be a stumbling block to giving them the gospel. And so Paul didn't do that. And it doesn't mean he never received pay from the churches. As we said last week in Philippians, Paul did get money from the churches at times. But it was not the regular way he operated. And he did that to minister to the weak in conscience and give them the gospel. And then look at verse 35. What's the other reason that he didn't receive pay? And remember the words of the Lord Jesus 
how he himself said what? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Why did Paul not work and receive pay? Because it's a lot of fun to give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more enjoyable. And that's the wonderful gift of sacrificial giving, that giving is very joyful. It's a blessing. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Sometimes people look at Paul's example in Acts, and you'll see this in 1 Thessalonians and other books of the Bible where Paul talks about this, and they they go back to that, and they say, you know, Paul didn't receive pay for his gospel work, so so we really shouldn't be paying missionaries or or pastors. Really, they should just go ahead and get another job and work in that way. I remember one time I was uh, traveling with another guy in the church uh, I was at in South Carolina, and we were driving somewhere, somewhere, and the guy turns to me at one point, and he says, you know, you really shouldn't be paid to be a pastor. And I was like, oh, really? And I not really talk to people in that way like that, and I'm not really comfortable talking about that kind of stuff, but he said that, and I was like, where do you get that from? And, and sometimes people do that. They go to an example like this, and they say this right here. And, and, and evidently, probably people in the Corinthian church were doing the same thing to Paul. They're saying, well, you know, you shouldn't receive compensation. And, and Paul's saying, actually, no, actually, it's the exact opposite. Not only is it something that I could have received, actually, Paul was saying, it's my right to receive compensation. And so I think it's good for us to understand this. And it's something that Paul and the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand. So look at verses 16 through 14. We're going to see the argument really Paul makes here. And let's start in verse number seven, actually, because we see three arguments for why gospel workers have the right to be paid for gospel work. And the first argument he gives, the, the first argument he gives is that compensation for labor is a part of God's creation design. Think about Genesis chapter two, verse 15. God makes a wonderful garden. He places Adam in the garden. And what does God give Adam as a gift? What's his gift? You know what it is? It's a job. (laughs) He's like, here, work the garden. And what do you get for that job? You get to eat. You get to be provided for. And so God gives us work as a gift to be able to provide and to be able to give to other people. So that's what we see in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expenses? Should soldiers in the military pay for their own gear? No, no. Should a soldier risk his or her life without compensation? Should the the U.S. military pay our soldiers? Yes. Like, we have really literally arguments about this every election, right? Should the soldiers get paid more? And the Republicans say, we love the soldiers more than you do, you know? And should we pay our veterans or should we compensate our veterans? Should we take care of them, you know? And everyone argues about that. And the answer, I think, for most people is... Yes, it makes sense. Like if someone has put the work in, they should be compensated for that. So Paul's argument here is if that's the case for a soldier on the front lines, that should be the case for gospel soldiers on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Notice the next example he gives, that's of a farmer who plants a vineyard. Verse 7, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit. When we were in uh, living in South Carolina, we love to go to some of the orchards around there. They have peach orchards and they have apple orchards. And so we would uh, go there. And when our kids were really small, it was fun to go there do, to do the most enjoyable thing, which is what? Eating. That's right. It's not picking the apples or the peaches. It's eating them, right? And especially when uh, they would let you do that. You just go around and eat your, your full, and then you get you do pick them because that's the right thing to do. But the point is, if, if you are a person that goes into an orchard like that, you want to eat some of the fruit. But even more so for the ones who are taking care of the orchard, like the owners of the orchard, the, the laborers in the orchard. I mean, do you think they ever make an apple pie from the apples? Right? I mean, yes, of course. In other words, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, like, if you work in a field you get to enjoy the fruit of the field. How about verse 7? He says, consider a shepherd or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Think about a shepherd 
who spends hours with his sheep and with his goats. And if he has goats, probably he's milking those goats. Think about the hours that he spends milking those goats. Does that shepherd take any of that milk home to his family? Yes, obviously they do. In other words, his point is here that God has provided work for us and we get to benefit from that work. And so the first argument for compensation in gospel work is that it's part of God's creation design. And the second argument is that the Old Testament teachers teaches gospel workers should be paid. Look at verse number eight. Do I say these things on human authority? In other words, am I just making this up myself? No, absolutely not. Does not the law say the same thing? The law speaks of the Old Testament Torah. Does not the law, does not the scripture, does not the Old Testament say the same thing? And so in verse number nine, he quotes Deuteronomy 25, four. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So, so God had Moses write this civil law that a farmer was to feed his ox who worked on the farm. Right? If an ox is on a farm and he's treading out the grain, it would be cruel not to let that ox have some of that grain, right? And so God put this law in here. Why would God write a law like that? Why is that a civil law? Why is, why is that important? That's the question he asked in verse 9. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Is it for the oxen? On one hand, yeah. I mean, on one hand, like God wants us to, to treat his creatures with care and not to be unnecessarily cruel to them. But God doesn't love oxen, right? He didn't send Jesus to die for oxen, right? He loves his people. And so this was written really for us. And that's his response there. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? I mean, does he not certainly speak for our sake? I mean, isn't this for us? And so what was the point here? Well, God was providing a principle in Deuteronomy 25 to live by. And that is creatures that work deserve to be paid. And that goes from the lowest of creatures, that goes to the oxen, and that goes to those other laborers that work for you. They deserve to be paid. So verse 10, he says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? Yes, right? It's, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. I think this is a general principle here that a laborer is worthy of his hire. I think this is probably is an appropriate time to give a little side comment on this because I think sometimes in churches in America, when people come into the church, they become a member, and if they have a certain trade in a certain area, sometimes the automatic thinking in people's minds are like, oh, yes, like, that's an electrician. I got an electrical problem. That guy can help me out. Well, that's a graphic artist. Well, I got a wedding coming up. Maybe that person can help me out. Or, or I, I, I got some plumbing issues. Oh, they're a plumber. Yes, I can get that person in there. And sometimes the thinking kind of goes like this, like, hey, maybe that person will do that for me wink, wink, with the Christian discount. And what's the Christian discount? It's free. I had a friend who was a plumber in South Carolina, and honestly, he was all the time getting called by people in the church to come and fix plumbing issues. And the idea was, you're a Christian, and he was a deacon, you're a deacon, you're a member of our church, of course you're going to do it for free. And I think this actually counters that. This verse actually is saying, no, actually, that person deserves to be paid for their work, right? If that's their job, in fact, I think for a church member, it shouldn't just be what they're worth. It should be, you should probably double it, right? Because <laughs> we love Christians. And so we want to bless them in that way. And so I think, and, and again, let me say, I'm not aware of this ever happening in our church. So I'm not saying that for that reason. But I think it is important for us to think this way. And that is, if there's someone who's skilled in their profession and they're going to do some work for us, then we should pay them. Now, if that person says, I want this for free, then praise God and enjoy the blessing of that. So Paul said, this applies to oxen. This applies to the plowman. This applies even to the spiritual laborer. Look at verse number 11. If we have sown, so Paul's speaking of himself and other gospel workers, if we have sown spiritual things among you, 
Is it not too much if we reap material things from you? He's speaking to the church here. So, So Paul claims that those who sow the word of God deserve to reap material things. This is a principle you see throughout Scripture. Now, I'm just going to state the obvious, and that is, this is a very awkward passage to preach, right? I mean, I'm up here preaching as a guy who's getting paid (laughs) as a pastor here. And I think that sometimes, uh, on the one hand, pastors can look at a text like this, and guys like me can look at a text like this, and we get like, how can I skip over this? (laughs) How can I get through this and get to another passage? And because pastors, in, in general, aren't in it for the money. So to talk about this, about, hey, uh, a pastor or a missionary or a gospel worker deserves to be paid, is, seems like it's just patting yourself on the back and asking for money. And so a lot of times pastors skip over texts like this. And on the other hand, there's some pastors that beat their congregations over the head with texts like this, right? And put a guilt trip upon congregations. And, and sometimes those pastors are in it for the money. And it's actually possible, and I think it's actually likely, that many pastors do pastoral ministry for the money. I mean, we watch guys on TV that are flying jets, and I think we all go, yeah, that's probably, some of those guys are in it for the money. And so the Bible warns against hucksters like that. But that's why I think it's so helpful. This is another example, and I probably say this too often, but it's so helpful to preach expositionally because I can preach without an agenda. Like, I didn't in March of this past year, think, okay, I'm going to preach through 1 Corinthians. Oh, when I get to 1 Corinthians 9, yes, you know. Or I'm going to really beat the church. No, it's like, this is the next text. And I think really preaching expositionally also does this. It says, this is something that we are to obey. And this is something I'm to obey. And so my goal in preaching expositionally and going through a text like this is really, number one, to help us understand the scripture and then for us to respond in obedience. And this really is an obedience issue. Financial giving is a matter of obedience to Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? So the scripture is teaching here that we are to give of our own financial resources through the church to support and advance the gospel. We have two boxes in the back. We have offer online giving. And why do we do that? I mean, I had someone tell me a couple weeks ago, they said, you guys never talk about money at the church. Well, it's not never, but we don't very often. And why is that? Well, something we're not wanting to beat you over the head with. But also, on the other hand, we do provide places for you to give. Why is that? Because we want to obey the Lord and worship him in our giving. Every Sunday when we come, we should be considering that we are worshiping the Lord in this way. And and the funds that we receive sends missionaries and supports missionaries. It supports gospel workers. It supports men and sometimes women in the ability to to serve our church, to meet spiritual needs, to meet physical needs, the ability to have air condition, amen for that, and also be able to gather together to worship the Lord. So Paul appealed to the church in Corinth that if a gospel worker sows the spiritual word, then it's appropriate to respond by allowing them to reap material things. I'm not going to go through all the passages, but there are a couple of passages, a handful that speak about this. To the church in Galatia, Paul wrote, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And I think this is another good example of that our giving is through the local church because you're taught the word That's a local pastor, and so therefore you give through that local church. This is the pattern we see in the scripture, that God wants us to sacrificially give of our own resources through our local church. 1 Corinthians 16, we'll get to this in a couple weeks, but Paul instructed the church of Corinth, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the other churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. What is that? On the first day of the week, that's Sunday when the church gathers, each of you, that's everyone, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And the truth is, Christians worship the Lord by giving sacrificially 
through the local church under the leadership of the elders for gospel advance. I'm not going to break that down, but that's probably a good sentence for you to consider right there, that we worship the Lord by giving sacrificially through the local church under the leadership of the elders for gospel advance. Look at Acts 2. You can see on the screen, Acts 2, 34 and 35. This is the beginning of the church. Many people had lands and houses. They sold them. They brought what they sold to the church, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Those were the ones who were the elders of the church of Jerusalem at the time, and it was distributed to each who had need. We see Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him, Acts 2, 36. He sold it, he brought it, and he did what? He laid it at the apostles' feet. We see this later on in Acts chapter 11. The church gathers. They determine that they need to give some money to the brothers and sisters in Judea that are under a famine. And so they collect money and they send it to the elders of the church there by the hand of Barnabas and Saul or Paul. And so you see this pattern in the church that we sacrificially give through the church under the leadership, under the authority of the elders to advance the gospel. I think all of us should consider what God has given to us. I'm talking from the youngest to the oldest. I'm talking from children. When you get a birthday card in the mail and grandma and grandpa gave you a card and it has $10 in there, that's something that God has given to you. I'm talking to those of us who have a regular income. Some of you who don't have an income, maybe from work, but maybe from retirement. What rights do we have in regard to those funds? Like, what freedoms in Christ do you have when it comes to the income that you receive? In other words, what can you do with that money? Well, the truth is, you have freedom in Christ to spend that money how you desire. We're not under the Old Testament tithing system. And that's sometimes a question people ask is, you know, are we under the tithing system of the Old Testament? You know, are we required to give 10%? Well, the answer is no, we're not under that. That's not a New Testament requirement to give a certain percentage. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, it's not just 10%, by the way. It's probably upwards around 30% of your income from the year. So, so there's not any kind of restriction. We have freedom to spend our money in the way that we believe God wants us to spend that money. But what we're learning in 1 Corinthians 9 here, it's not just what you know. It's not just, yay, I have freedom. I'm not under the 10%. But it's actually saying, okay, I have freedom to spend my money how I want to, and I want to advance the gospel. So I'm going to deny myself. Maybe I'm not going to have that Starbucks, or maybe I'm going to take 10%, or maybe I'm going to spend, take this much money, and I'm going to give to spread the gospel. When I was growing up, my, my siblings and I had uh, a mowing business, and so we did that every Saturday. And my father had us, every time that we got a paycheck, take 10% out and put it in the offering. And he took out a percentage as well. I can't remember what it was. I think it was more than 10%. But, and I don't know if that was to teach us that the government's going to take your money or what. But no, but he, he had a good reason for it. And that was he paid for the car. He paid for the gas. And, and if we were going to go to the hospital, he was going to pay for that bill too. So, But you know the one I really struggled with? It was when it came to Sunday, and we were in a Baptist church in Indiana, so you always pass the plate in Baptist churches, and, and, uh, and I had to put that money in that plate, and when I was going to put that money in there, I really struggled with that, because I started thinking of all the things I could spend that money on. You know, it's that 20 or $30 or whatever it was, and it was 10% of my income, so I'm putting it in there, and I'm going, you know, I have some needs. I played basketball through some of my time in junior high and high school. And a lot of times my basketball shoes had holes in them. I mean, so that was a genuine need. I needed to buy them some shoes sometimes. And sometimes I had once too, where I I was in the era of baseball cards. Does anyone remember that era? Or or just things like that. Like a a boy's thinking, man, if I just got this card and I could, you know, that $10 could buy that card. That's going to be worth so much money in, in 2023, you know? Yeah, sitting in my mom's closet probably still somewhere. Anyways. And then as I matured, I remember going to college and learning that, hey, I'm not required to give 10%. And at first I was like, yes, I can spend my money how I want. And then as I began to mature in the Lord, 
something changed in my heart and in my life. Why was it that it was hard for me and difficult for me when I was younger and more immature? Why was it difficult for me to, to put that money in the offering plate? Well, I think Jesus answered that question. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Show me where you spend your money. Show me what you spend your money on. I'll show you what you love. You spend your money and your time on that which your heart loves. And the truth is, in my youth, I didn't really love God very much. I didn't really value the gospel or the church. And so putting it in there seemed like a waste. It seemed like I was throwing it away. But then as I grew older and actually matured in the Lord, I began to love the gospel. I began to love God more. And the more I did that, the more I thought, I want to give to the Lord. And it was a delight to actually worship the Lord in this way. When my wanter changed, my giving changed. And I think that probably the 10% is probably a good starting place, actually. And when I was in college, I kept that 10%, and I still do that to this day. And I think it's an important um, it can be a helpful, I should say, a helpful marker for us. It can be helpful for us. But what really is the regulation on how much we should give? Well, there's no, there's no set amount you're going to find in the New Testament. It comes back to this. It comes back to your love for God. There is Christian liberty in your giving. But even in that, we must deny ourselves and sacrificially give for the sake of the gospel. I think it's probably wise for us regularly in our life to sit down and ask ourselves as we look at our bank accounts, what are we loving and are we sacrificially giving for the gospel? How can I love the Lord more in my giving? So the gospel advances in the world through sacrificial giving. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you, verse 12, if others share this rightful claim, if the other apostles and other pastors and missionaries, they share this claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything. Wow, that's quite a statement. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Yes, Paul says, I have the right to be paid. But Paul said, I did not use that right. And can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine working a full-time job night and day, emotionally exhausting, and not receiving a dime from it? And that was Paul here. He denied himself and he sacrificially gave to advance the gospel. And look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering? So this is his last really example of the Old Testament teaching gospel workers should be paid. The priests were paid. And how were the priests paid? By the other tribes. And the last, the last point that supports his argument is that Jesus said, the New Testament teaches gospel workers should be paid. Jesus taught this. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is in Luke chapter 10. Jesus trained his disciples to go out and preach the gospel. They were to go out by faith. And this is what it says in Luke 10, 7. And Jesus said this, and remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So go out by faith, preach the gospel, and then expect to receive a wage from those who receive the gospel. Jesus taught this as well in 1 Timothy 5. I say Jesus because it's very popular in our culture to say Jesus is only in the gospels and not the rest of the New Testament. But this is the teaching of Christ through the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well 
be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And he gives two points to support this, that pastors who teach and preach should be paid. Verse 18, for the scripture says, Deuteronomy 25, 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads up the grain. Luke 10, 7, the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, this was a long text about this. Why did Paul keep going on and on and on about this? Because Paul wants us to consider our rights. Because we love to champion our rights. And Paul says, consider your rights, yes, but consider how you can sacrifice them for the sake of the gospel. Look down in verse 15. He says, I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. This is not a letter to say, raise my support. It's at 50%. I need 100%. No. He says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Paul says, I only want to boast in Christ and in the gospel. And so notice Paul's sincere desire for necessity is laid upon me. Here's my greatest burden in this, in this world. It's not to get more things. It's not to, big, to build bigger houses, to have a better income. It's this, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's giving the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Notice verse 18, he asks a question. What then is my reward? What is the reward for preaching the gospel? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What's Paul's reward in gospel ministry for him? It was that I get to preach for free. In verse 19, why did he do that? For though I am free from all, though I have freedom in Christ, I have rights in Christ, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And so Paul did it all for the sake of the gospel. Let me end my sermon with two stories. I think this can help us to apply this text to our own lives. On one side, I want to consider the sacrificial giving of your life. I read a biography this summer about a lady named Rachel Saint. She grew up in a Christian home in Pennsylvania. She was very poor. And it was her desire to follow Christ. And at one point in her life, she decided that she really wanted to tell people about Christ who have never heard the gospel. And she imagined herself going to some tribal area and, and giving the gospel to them, translating the scripture into their, into their language and giving the gospel. And when she was about 17 or 18 years old, a very wealthy widow took an interest in her. She would invite her to her house. She would have tea with her. And, and one summer, she invited Rachel to go on a five-star tour of Europe. They took a luxury cruise liner over to Europe. They stayed in the poshest of hotels. They ate the finest foods. They had the luxury life. And on the way back, they were sitting in this luxury cabin, having a little tea and some dessert. And this wealthy widow looked at Rachel and said, I, I really want to take an interest in you, and I would love for you to come live with me, to go to this really important school, and I would like to give you my income. I want you to inherit everything I have. Poor girl, Pennsylvania, being told you're going to have this amazing wealthy woman's income. Now, what would you want to do at that moment? Well, as Rachel spent the rest of the trip praying and considering her offer, she came back to her at the end of the trip, and she said, no, I really believe that I couldn't do that and follow Christ in the way I think he wants me to go. And she gave up her right to take that income, that money, so she could give the gospel. And, you know, God used her in a remarkable way. She went down to some, tribal, some tribes down in South America and Central America, and she was able to help translate the Bible into their language. And many of those people came to Christ, people who had never heard the gospel because she sacrificed 
her life for gospel advance. I wonder, I wonder if maybe there's a young person in this room and you're listening and you need to consider, maybe God wants you to give your life for gospel advance. Maybe you have a direction in life you wanna go, but in your heart, you, you, you know the Lord wants you to follow him in a particular area. Maybe it's being a pastor for a young man. Maybe you're a young man in here and you're like, people have said, I, I have some gifts in that. Or you've thought, man, I think this is something that I could, God could use me in. You think, I could go this direction in life, but maybe I should deny that right and follow Christ for gospel advance. Let me tell another story kind of on the other side of it. Henry Crowell owned Quaker Oats Company. Anybody have Quaker Oats this morning? Okay, if you did, this is going to be helpful for you. He was very, very wealthy. He was a Christian man. He wanted to follow Christ and advance the gospel. So what should he do? Here's a man who owned a company, very wealthy. What should he do with his money? Well, he decided that he was going to give 70% of his income to gospel work. And for over 40 years, he gave 70% of his income to gospel work. He basically gave all his money away to the church. In 1901, he was attending Moody Church. And Moody Church and Moody Bible Institute particularly was in financial ruin. And so he stepped in financially and gave and supported that ministry. He through his giving, was able to see the ministry grow. The school was saved. Think about all the men and women who went through that school, Moody Bible Institute, and went out for Christ because of this man's giving. He was able to help them start up with his giving. Moody Press. Think about all the books out there that we enjoy today that went through Moody Press. He was able to help with his money. When I say he, he didn't do this, but he financed the pioneering of the radio ministry. How many of you have been blessed by the radio ministry and podcast today if you're, you know, younger? He, he really uh, spearheaded that. He funded uh, a monthly magazine called The Fundamentals. And, and you might not realize this, but that was one of the most significant magazines in the 20th century for Christianity. Like that magazine shaped Christianity, particularly our type of Christianity, conservative evangelical Christianity. What did that man, what did it look like for that man to give sacrificially? What did it look like for him every day? You know what it looked like? He ran a very successful business. It meant that he got up early in the morning and he worked all day long to make really great oatmeal. And I say that as an example because I think sometimes we go to that one side of giving our life and selling it all and following Christ, which is, is something we should all consider but also, I think probably for the vast majority, it's, okay, what does it look like on a daily basis for me to sacrifice my life for the sake of the gospel? And sometimes it looks like getting up, going to work, working hard, being a light to those people, but then considering how can I, even with what God has given to me, advance the gospel? So I think all of us should consider this. What does sacrificially giving look like for me? In, in my day-to-day, -day, in my week this week, but in my life. Would you pray with me? Let's conclude in prayer.